Amen. Well, Happy New Year to you all. Thank you very much. And uh, it's good to see you here. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn into Exodus chapter 20. We've been working our way through the 10 words. And if you know anything about Exodus 20, um, we call them the Ten Commandments. But we really shouldn't at this point because they're not called the Ten Commandments here. Uh, if you notice in your heading, it'll say maybe the Ten Commandments, a little heading above the passage. But when you read the passage, the word commandment never shows up. It just says God spoke these words to his people. Now, they are called commandments in Deuteronomy. When you get to Deuteronomy and Moses is reiterating these things, reminding the people before they go into the land and cross the Jordan and begin the campaign to take the Holy Land, he does remind them of these things and he calls them commandments then. But they're not called commandments here. And the reason is because what you see developing through the book of Exodus is this Jewish wedding ceremony, okay? And so the picture is what God is entering into with the people of Israel is much like a covenant that a man would enter into with a woman. This covenant that is a vow, a covenant relationship. And he's saying that I have chosen you, of all the people of the world, I've chosen you to fulfill my great will through. Now for you to get the full benefit of this, these things have to be true. So when you come to the 10 words, uh, the reason that the word commandment isn't used there is because this is really like the vows that are being exchanged between a bride and a groom. In other words, for us to have the full benefit of this relationship, for this to be mutual benefit, mutually beneficial, these things have to be true about who we are. And obviously the first one starts with, you can't have other lovers, you know, have no other gods before me. In other words, this has to be an exclusive relationship. I have to be the, the, the sole passion of your heart and your desire and your goals and your will. I have to have your praise and your worship and your adoration. That has to be me and you can't share it with anything else out there. And then the second one is how we worship God. He goes, when you do show me that adoration, don't show it to me by focusing your attention on some man-made object. No idols. I don't want you to worship me through some representation of who I am. I want you to come directly to me. Because there's nothing out there that can perfectly represent who I am. And then the next one is, don't take my name in vain. And again, that's a picture of that wedding ceremony where a bride and a groom, when they come together, the bride takes the name of the man. And so now this last name is something that she bears and it has this representation. And we even do this in our culture where, hey, hey, live up to the name or, hey, Hester's don't do that kind of thing. There's kind of like this pride in our family name. And God says, I'm giving you my holy name. I'm impressing it upon you as my chosen people. Don't take this name in vain. So it has way less to do with what we say and way more to do with how we live. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about taking his name in vain. And then the next one, what we talked about last week, is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the Sabbath is all about rest, but we talk about these are slaves that have come out of Egypt and for 430 years all they've known is slavery never having a day off never having vacation and their worth had become associated with how many bricks they could make for Pharaoh and so God is undoing what Egypt has done to them he says you're going to work for six days just like I did in creation but you're also going to take a day off and what you're going to do on that day off is undo what those other six days did to you in other words for one day a week You've got to remind yourself that you're not a machine, 
that your worth does not come from what you produce. In other words, your value is not measured by how many bricks you make. Your value is because you are my children and I've chosen you. Your value and your worth is directly related to your relationship with me. Now, as we continue on in these 10 words, the first four are all about our relationship with God. The next six are all about our relationship with each other and the world around us, okay? And that's intentional. If you go all the way back to creation, it says that we were created in the image and likeness of God. And that really is human constitution at its core. In other words, we were created to have a relationship with God, which is what likeness is. And we were created to represent God in the world around us, which is what the image is. So created in likeness, relationship, and created in his image and representation. So in other words, human constitution boils down to this. We were created to have a relationship with God and to image him to the world around us. That's why we were created. That's our purpose in life. The Ten Commandments follow the same thing. These ten words here, the first four are about our relationship with God. The last six are how we represent him to the world around us. And all these things have to be true of us. So when you come to the word that we're looking at today, which is the first one, honor your father and mother, it's the first one that deals with how we relate to each other. Again, first four, how we relate to God. Next six, how we relate to each other. And so we come to this passage here, and it really finds its roots as well in the creation narrative. And that's one thing that you're going to find in these ten words is that everything keeps going back to the right order, the way God created the world to begin with. Okay? So I want to start, not in Exodus 20, but in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, again, representation and relationship. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God set in motion there in creation the purpose of humanity. To know him, to make him known in the way that we live out our lives. To be fruitful and multiply. So in other words, more generations will follow. And to be faithful in what the job that we've been given to do. Now... Let's turn over to Exodus chapter 20, and I want you to see how that begins to fit in. Exodus 20 verse 12 is our passage for today. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, many people think about honoring their mother and their father, and it's really not a big deal to them. It's no problem at all, because they had a great mom and dad. So here's what I want to do today. I know that there are two different groups of people here. There are one that when you hear honoring your mother and your father, you're like, yeah, that, that needs to be done. That's the thing that we have to do. And, and, uh, and I, what a great mom and dad I have. And I do my best to honor them. And then we have a whole other group of people that because of the way that you grew up, because of the mom and dad that you have, when you hear honor your father and your mother, you cringe because you grew up with a completely different example. You grew up with an absent father, an angry father, 
a, a distant mother, whatever it may be, there was some kind of dysfunction there. So I realize I'm talking to two different groups of people today, so I want to talk to both of you. The first I want to deal with is those that when you hear honor father and mother, it's a bit of a struggle for you because of the example that you saw. You would say to me, and if you only knew what happened to me from the time I was 13 till the time I was 18, you would understand that it's difficult for me to think of the words to honor your father and your mother. Here's a question I want to present to those of you who maybe grew up with not the best treatment. How do you honor when the name of parents actually brings up a disturbing memory for you? How do you honor a mother and a father that were far less than perfect? I mean, none of us are perfect, but you know what I'm talking about, right? The ones that did a lot of damage by the way that they lived, by the dysfunction that they put on so many others. Now, we have to begin with this truth. And this truth is the largest race known to man begins with about 50 million athletes. However, the reward for winning this race is not a trophy or any kind of accolades. It's an egg. And only one actually wins. Now, as soon as the gun goes off, about a million of them give up right at the very beginning. Okay? But the rest of them strive and they push and they make their way. But only one of those 50 million athletes actually make it. Congratulations to all of you today. You are one of those winners. And if you still don't know what I'm talking about, um, you have to put all that together. And that is how you were created. Are you with me so far? Okay. So I'm trying to do this in a way that everybody can understand. And parents, you can explain this later. Now, there are things, because you won that race, there are some things that you can never say. Number one, you can never say, I never win anything. Okay? Because you did. Right? The other thing you can't say is, I'm always late. Because you weren't. One time in your life, at least one time in your life, you were not late. You were right on time. Okay? And the last one is you can never say I'm not a good swimmer. Because okay? you were the best swimmer of 50 million athletes out there. Okay? Now, the reason I say that in a joking kind of way is because to ever get to the point to honor your mother and your father, you first have to start with an appreciation for the fact that you're alive. You're here. And somehow God used flawed individuals to bring you into this world. Okay? If you lack an appreciation for life itself, you will never get to the point of being free enough to honor your father and your mother. You see, there is something that's profound about the creation of a human being, something that's very divine, something that's even mysterious about it. The more we know about it, the more questions we have about it. There's something that's just unexplainable. It's, it's beyond us, really. Now, if you're going to honor your parents, you have to deal with the fact that you are alive. You have to come to grips with your own existence. In other words, until we are able to appreciate the life that God has extended to us, you'll never be able to deal with these other issues. God used your parents before they ever did any harm to you to bring you into this world. And I would also say this, God gave your parents ample opportunity 
to repent of their sins, to come to know him as their Savior and Lord, many, many times, even an opportunity to be redeemed. I fully, fully believe that, that God gave them that opportunity. And let me just say a truth that's a little bit hard for us to accept sometimes, and that is this. God sometimes uses the extremely flawed, dare we even say the abusive, to bring about incredibly miraculous things. Think about Moses, David, Abraham, Samson. I mean, when you get into the acts of the judges, I mean, you see God using these very flawed individuals to bring about his purpose. And I think those stories are there to remind us that we're the ones that brought sin upon us, not God. And God continues to be faithful to use those in the world, as flawed as they may be, to still bring about his good plan for his good creation. You see, we, as a church, believe that every single one of you are a miracle. An absolute miracle. An absolute, sacred, miraculous miracle. Now, if you think about this, you, as you walk this earth, are a walking reminder of how awesome God is and how miraculous he is and how good he is. We will never be truly free until we're first grateful to be alive. Let me say that again because it's the basis of everything else I'm going to say. We will never be truly free until we are grateful to be alive. We have to have or develop this the sense of awe of our own existence. Until I can embrace the fact that I'm here, until I can reach that place, I'm never going to feel that, that freedom. You know, God is still in the business today of setting people free. That's what he wants to do. That's what his goal, that's his will, is to set people free from their sins, from their addictions, from, from their selfishness, from whatever it may be. And if you are trying to carry all of the darkness and all of the baggage that's been handed to you from whatever the situation may be, you're going to have a difficult time being set free. Now, if you're trying to do that, if you've been trying to carry everything that's happened to you as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, then you probably already realize that it gets harder and harder to carry around the older you get, not easier and easier. Again, we will never be truly free until we are first grateful to be alive. Now, after we've established the fact that you are a miracle and that it is an awesome thing that you are here today and that you are living and that you are breathing, now we are ready to embrace the truth that we have in Exodus chapter 20. But I want to go forward for a moment and I want to kind of pick a picture of what the gospel tells us, and Paul talks about this in Romans, very familiar verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so Paul says right there that all of us, no matter where you come from, no matter who you are, no matter how much you strive to be a righteous person, everyone has fallen short of God's glorious, holy standard. We've all fallen short of that. All includes my parents. 
doesn't it? If I'm going to deal with the problems that I have to back up and, and think about, then I first have to begin with the truth that I am thinking about flawed individuals. Okay? We are all a part of a fallen humanity. We find that in Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. We call that the meta-narrative of Scripture. It's the story. It's the overarching story of all the books of the Bible from beginning to end. And it's the story of every single book and every little story in the book. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So I have to see my parents in the way that I see myself. People who have not met up to God's standard. They are not perfect. Paul continues in Romans in chapter 14, verse 9. He says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So, God created humanity, right? God created every single one of us. And every one of us have fallen in our acceptance of our sinful nature and our engagement of that and living that out. So we have corrupted our own existence. Now, it is this, this twisted aspect of humanity that has separated us from God. That's what Paul's talking about there. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That has separated us from our relationship with God. And Paul tells us that every human being will one day stand before God and they will give an account of their lives. They will give an account for the things that they have done. Now, we understand God is perfect. God is holy. God is totally other than us. So when we ask questions like, where was God when this happened to me? We have to be assured that the scripture is absolutely 100% crystal clear. God hates what happened to you more than you can ever hate it. God hates sin. God hates sin. God hates what sin does. God hates that sin corrupts his creation. God hates that sin separates us from him. And Paul points out in this passage that God says, I am going to deal with it. One day I'm going to deal with it. Now God is not like MasterCard. He doesn't settle his accounts every 30 days. But the one thing that Paul wants us to understand is that God always settles his accounts in his perfect timing. So when you hear people use the language of revenge, like, you know, they're always talking about, one day I'm going to have my opportunity. One day I'm going to strike back. Think about what you're actually saying. When you begin to have that attitude, no matter who it is, what you're saying is, this person will be accountable to me. This person will have to answer to me for the actions that they committed. But the text says they're not accountable to you. They're accountable to a much higher power and a one that not only is a higher power, one who is way more just and righteous of a judge than we could ever be. And he says they're going to be accountable to me. So I want you to think about that. If that's true, then revenge fundamentally says, God, you can't do this well. So 
I will take your role and I will take care of this myself. I will hold them accountable. Revenge is not trusting God to be just. That's what it is. Anytime we take revenge in any form or fashion, whether it's a backbiting comment or whether it's a manipulation of circumstances or whether it's just the silent treatment, whatever it is, when we do that, what we are saying is, God, I don't trust you to be just. Therefore, I'm going to implement my own justice. So when we think about the evil that our parents may have imprinted upon us because they are fallen, because they have fallen short of the glory of God, because they are just like we are to that degree, they are unrepentant, maybe they are unchanging, maybe that's the difference that separates them from us. God says, listen, I'm going to deal with it. Now hear me today, if you're in that group, if your parents have wounded you, I can almost guarantee you that somebody wounded them. There's a truth and a saying that we're all familiar with, hurt people, hurt people. Whenever someone hurts you, the first thing you should think is, I wonder who hurt them. Because if you don't understand that, then for some reason you're making a judgment based on a person who you believe should be 100% righteous and 100% flawless. If you don't first come to the conclusion that they are fallen and more than likely someone has hurt them and what they're doing is continuing that cycle of pain and inflicting that pain on others. Maybe even it was their parents. You ever heard somebody say, he's doing the same thing his dad did? You ever heard somebody say that? Yeah, he's acting just like his dad. He's doing the same, or she's doing the same thing that her mother did. She's acting just like her mother. And a lot of times, these are the people who have complained their whole lives about how their dads or their mothers have treated them. My dad is this, and my mother is that. She's always this, and he's always that. And then they begin to live out those very same things. So the question becomes this. How are you not going to make the same mistake that your parents did? Are you going to change or are you going to become a part of this prolonged problem? As parents, I want you to know, we all have the opportunity to drop it or to pass it on. There's no denying that we get handed junk from our parents. And that doesn't matter how good your parents may have been. You still got handed some junk. Some of us got way more baggage than others, but we all have something that was handed to us by imperfect individuals. There is no denying that truth. But there is also no denying that the choice is now yours of what you're going to do with it. The question is, and the one that you have to answer how are you going to overcome the same mistakes? Look again at verse 12, chapter 20. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now, one thing I want to clear up right now is so there are some versions of Scripture out there that misinterpret this. I can't remember which version it is. It may be the NIV. Um, but it says there that your days may be long upon the earth. That is not what this text says. 
And I've heard that mistaught over and over again, that some of these people who live to be 100 years old, and people go, well, they must have just really honored their parents. That is not what it's talking about. Because then you would have to assume that everyone who dies as a child was the most horrible kid that could possibly have lived on the face of the earth. And everyone who becomes 100 years old has to be the greatest person to honor their parents with their whole life. That's not what it's talking about. Think about what he's talking about here. He's bringing these people out who have been slaves for their entire existence. Now, let me tell you something. When you have slavery, you have family dysfunction. We've seen this in America. You know, uh, the African community, the African-American community that, that has strived to embrace the new freedom that they have, one of the things that they still struggle with is the family unit and so many pictures and places of poverty in the United States. And they're not alone. If you go into these places that are full of poverty, it doesn't matter your race. If it's white, Asian, uh, Latino, or African-American, when you have that kind of poverty, you're going to have family dysfunction in that kind of group when they're closely knit together. And it takes generation after generation after generation of making mistakes to undo what those times of pain and suffering did to them. What God is saying to this group of people is, you are fundamentally different now than you were when you were in Egypt. And if you want to live a long time in this land that I'm giving you, one of, the red, one of the bedrock foundations of your culture has to be honoring the generation before you. If you don't do this, you will not last very long in this land. He's not talking about them and how many days they live. He's talking about them as a people living in the land that God has given to them. If they honor this principle, they will be in this land for a long time. If they dishonor this, they're going to find themselves exiled to other lands. Okay, why? Because the whole cr- culture is going to begin to fracture and fall apart. Can we see this in our culture? I mean, you can go back several generations and there was a respect and an honor for those who were older, a respect and honor for um, those who were in authority, a respect and honor for those who were our superiors, whether they be parents or teachers or coaches or police. All of that has eroded in our culture. And I'm just telling you, America's days are numbered because of that one truth. A society will not last if there's not a respect for the generation that proceeds. Why? Because we assume that we are better than they are and that they must pay for their sins while we wallow in ours. Do you see that? And unless God gives us another opportunity through another awakening, our days are numbered because this truth is not just for Israel. This truth is a bedrock truth that God has woven into the fabric of the universe. You can even look at other cultures that do not respect God as the author of life, and they do not name the name of Yahweh, like the Chinese. And yet, what do you find in that culture that they've existed for thousands and thousands of years? You see an honoring of the generation that preceded them. It's a bedrock principle of their community, and they've lasted long in their land. So again, God is telling them, this is what has to be true of you. I know how I've made the world, and I know how I've made you, and these principles are true, and they're bedrock, and you've got to make these last. If you don't respect these, it's going to fall apart. If you respect these, then these will be foundational for you. So if you don't have this sense of gratefulness about your existence, what happens is you hand it off to the next generation, and they're not happy about their existence. And it becomes this snowball effect, and pretty soon, it's like the whole culture goes sour because of this painful, repetitive cycle. 
this kid hates his mother and father, and they become, they become the kind of mother and father that their kids hate. You see what I'm talking about? It's the brilliance of Exodus 20, because Exodus 20 is telling us that somehow we have to break the cycle. Because you have the opportunity to either pass on the cycle or break the cycle. And the question we have to ask, again, is this. How are you not going to pass this wound on to the next generation? How are you going to keep this from continuing? If you're a 16-year-old here today who hates your parents because they've wounded you through their sin and their irresponsibility, how are you going to become the kind of parent that their 16-year-old doesn't hate? You see, there is a truth, a bedrock principle. You are becoming what you have seen. I call this the default principle. Okay? And that's just something I came up with. The, the default principle is something I talk about in pre-marriage counseling all the time. And this is what I tell young couples. I said, as you come together, I don't know where you come from. I don't know how your parents have impacted you. And, and I know that everybody goes up and goes, when I'm older, when I'm married, I am never going to do this. And I say, you know what? As long as the situation is controllable and the situation is relaxed, you can do that. You cannot be whatever it is that you didn't like about your mom or your dad. But let me tell you something. When push comes to shove and you get in a tight circumstance and crisis hits and you get squeezed, whatever's inside comes out. And what's inside is what you have seen your entire life. It doesn't matter how bad you don't want to be it. You've got to come to, the gri come to grips with the idea that it's the only thing that you've seen. It's what you've seen over and over again, day after day after day. And if you deny that that has any impact on you, you are only fooling yourself. It's in there, whether you like it or not. It has been the thing that you've seen, and you have been impacted by that. It's the default that we all go to when we're squeezed. Have you ever done something and thought, oh, my gosh, I'm becoming my dad, or I'm becoming my mother. I thought I would never say that, and look, I just did it. I guarantee you, when you did it, it was a crisis kind of situation. Do you have friends that are always angry? Maybe the reason that they're so angry is because they see themselves becoming just like their parents. Have you ever heard someone use the phrase, because I said so? Have you ever heard that? You ever said that? Maybe that's not really a claim of authority. Maybe what that is is a disclaimer of behavior. You see the difference in those two? Sometimes we think of it as an authority. You're going to do that because I said so. But I think sometimes it's just a disclaimer of behavior. I know I haven't modeled this for you. I know I haven't lived this out. I know I haven't been true to this principle, but you need to be. The brilliance of the command that we have here in chapter 20 is this. Am I becoming the evil that I hate? Now let me just say this. Honoring your parents does not mean ignoring what happened. It was a bad situation. Maybe it was even something that we would label as abusive. I don't know. I don't know what your situation was. It, if it was, it was pure evil. And you need to be honest about that. Don't ignore it. Number two, honoring your parents does not mean condoning everything that they do. 
doesn't mean looking past it. doesn't mean, oh, that's just who they are, or maybe that's just what they've struggled with. You don't have to paint this glossy picture of the world where nothing is wrong and you make excuses for them. It doesn't mean calling something that is clearly wrong right. And the third thing is this. It does not mean no boundaries. Sometimes honoring means staying away from this person has hurt me and every time I get around them they poison me more and more then you know what you need to set up some very clear boundaries some very clear lines that keep that from happening sometimes the best way you can honor your parents is to keep the evil that they keep perpetuating perpetuating from affecting you and your family I remember this one person who said, and I thought this was so wise, and he was reflecting back on the abuse that he had been handed from his father. And he said, uh, I thought this was the best perspective he could have had. He said, you know, he was never there. Um, he was never a good father. He was always abusive with his language. He never said, I love you. And he never told me he was proud of me. And he said, and I'm thankful for the gift that he's given me. And I was like, really, what is that? He said, he gave me the greatest example of what a father should not be. He said, and you know what? Maybe that's all he had to give, but that's what he gave me. And he said, so I'm going to take that gift, and I'm going to strive to let God change me so that I can use his gift wisely. I thought, wow. Choosing to see something as an opportunity instead of a curse. That's amazing. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul continues on this idea that we find in Exodus 20. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. What is he talking about there? This is the first commandment in all of the ten words that we have here that comes, ha, comes with a promise. Hey, if you do this, you're going to live long in the land that God has given to you. Verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of, yet not your own wisdom, not your own experiences, not your own thought about how money should be spent or how time should be spent, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, moms, if you have guts of steel, then I dare you to sit down with your kids and ask them, what do I do that makes you angry? Now, you better be ready if you have the kind of relationship with your kids where they feel like they can be honest. But I think it's a great question to ask them. What do I do that makes you angry? That doesn't mean that their answer is right. In other words, that may be their own problem if they get angry at what you say. But to hear them, and to reflect on it. If your kids can't be honest with you, that's a whole other issue, a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But here's the thing. I wonder if you do that, would your child respect you more or less for asking them that question? Think about it. Ask them this question. What are the ways that I crush your spirit that's a, that, I'm telling you, you've got to have guts of steel to be able to ask that. But look at them and say, I really want to hear an honest opinion. How do I crush your spirit sometimes? What are the things that I say or do that do that to you? 
You see, Jesus died on the cross so that we could pass our baggage onto the cross instead of onto our kids. That's part of the message of the cross. As Paul says in Ephesians, rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So here the parent is teaching the kid what God is like. This is how God set it up. You are going to become the example to your children about what God is like. We say to them, this is where I messed up. Here is where God is enabling me to grow from this and to be transformed. But to be able to do that, we first have to be humble enough to say, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. And I know that I've hurt you. I'm sorry. But God's not giving up on me and I don't want you to either. That's humility in parenting. How many of you know someone who has walked away from God because of their parents' religion? Now, it's not always the case. Sometimes that's just an excuse for their own rebellion. But sometimes I think what that child is really sensing is that's not what God's like. That's not what he's like. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, Moses writes, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, going back to this idea of the Imago Dei, the image of God that we are all created in, that it tells us there in Genesis chapter 1, it should be our goal as Christian parents to put God on display for for our kids to see. So the idea is that a kid would observe their parents who's full of compassion Now, when's the last time you saw your parents sacrifice because they knew someone else needed something? When's the last time your kids saw you sacrifice because somebody else needed something? When's the last time you heard your parents expressing true concern about the poor When's the last time your kids have seen you experience true concern about the poor? What about seeking out the needy? What about being compassionate? What about being full of grace? Always reminding that the children are loved simply because they're your child. Not because of anything they've done, not because of any grade they've gotten, not because of their achievements in sports, but because they are your image and your likeness. Now, this is what I want you to hear. You are constantly teaching your kids what God is like. Did you hear that? You are constantly, whether you're trying to or not, you are teaching them what God is like. Why? Because that's the way God created the world. That kids are going to learn And relate to God by the way their parents treat them. Slow to anger, merciful, gracious, abounding in love, steadfast faith. What are you teaching your kids about God when you get cut off in traffic? Man, that's a painful one for me. I don't know if I told you that. I think I told you this before. My little daughter, when she was just able to talk, um, this was a stark reminder. She was sitting in her little chair back there and I travel because we have another campus in Mobile so I travel back and forth across that bayway and that bayway will test your faith okay because because of people from Louisiana and Texas mostly okay 
And um, I'm telling you, I mean, it's just like if you want to see me in my full rebellion and sinful nature, just go for a ride with me across that bayway because that's where I get tested the most. And I was reminded of that as I was coming through that tunnel and coming out. Why everybody slows down when they come out of that tunnel, I have no idea. But this guy just pulls out in front and I have to slam on brakes. And what I hear from the back is, stupid idiot. I'm talking like a little girl that's just barely able to talk, and she already knows. <laughs> and, you know, that's somewhat funny, and it's somewhat alarming, because those eyes are always watching, and they're always perceiving, and they're like these sponges that are always soaking in. Have you ever been in a situation and you're like, Dad, I know this cashier is slow. Yes, I know we picked the wrong line. I agree, this does not qualify as an express lane. But, Dad, I don't think she should die because of it, you know? If you're a parent who's quick to get angry, I want you to know that, number one, there's something messed up about that. And, number two, you're passing that messed up onto your children. We need to be showing them more of what God is like and less what we are like. So how are you not going to do these things, and I have three words for you. Let it go. And to be able to do that, you have to ask God to help you let it go. As parents, we need to come to this place where we can apologize to our kids and say, you know what, I just really need to let that go. Because in the ultimate scheme of things, this isn't the most important thing. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you have bitterness in your heart? Are you angry? If so, let me just tell you something. God did not create your body to carry that around. It's too heavy. It's not for you. And guess what? It's going to be even heavier for your kids if you pass it on. Lay it down. Let it go. My mom was a great example to me as a mother. She was flawed. She had definite things that she was not perfect at. But one thing I saw my mom do every single day, she started out the day with her Bible in her hand and her little journal. And if you knew how my mom grew up, you would be overly impressed with that. Because my mom grew up with a dad, my grandfather, who worked in a mill, and he was a part-time uh, pastor of an Assemblies of God church. And he would go to church on Sunday and he would preach God's word. And then as soon as he got his paycheck on Friday, he would head to the local bar and he would spend the entire paycheck buying drinks for everybody in there. And he would leave his family with nothing. My mom even told me of a time where the bartender called her mom and said, he's here again and I have his check here if you want to go ahead and come pick it up. That's what she grew up with. And for the longest time, she couldn't think of God any different than her father. And not at the time I have an opportunity to tell you about it, but God just radically changed my mother. He stepped into her life, and I'm telling you something, she changed the direction of where her life was headed. And she gave me an incredible gift by saying, I'm not perfect, but I stood on my father's shoulders to be able to hand you something better than what I got. Now it's your responsibility to give to your children better than what I'm giving you. That 
is what this passage is about. What happens when we do things right? When we love with a never-ending, pursuing, faithful kind of love? I'm going to do something very odd, and I'm going to read to you a children's book. I told you the first part of the sermon was all about those who had bad examples and to make sure that we weren't being a bad example. And then for the rest of us, there is this good example that you had and now you have. And so it's going to be really this very short part. Okay? But I really, as I thought about this passage and I really pondered this ending, I kept going back to this book that was introduced to me as a teenager. Okay? I didn't have this book as a child. But when I read it, I was always impressed with it. Now it's not perfect, okay? It's not perfect. It's not even a Christian children's book. But the principle behind it is bedrock solid. And it's all about we are impressing our kids with the actions that we have. It's called Love You Forever. Ever heard of it? If you haven't, I'm going to let you see the illustrations that come with the book. And I'm literally going to read the kid's book. It only takes about five to seven minutes. I want you to hear the words. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The baby grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was two years old. And he ran all around the house. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator. And he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked him up and she rocked him back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. While she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as you're living, my baby you'll be. The little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. And he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, and looked up over the side of the bed. And if he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. The boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends. He wore strange clothes and he listened to strange music. Sometimes the mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor and looked over the side of the bed. If he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. That teenager grew, 
He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a grown man. He left home and he got a house across town. But sometimes on dark nights, the mother got into her car, drove across town. And if all the lights were out in her son's house, she opened his bedroom window, would crawl across the floor and look up over the side of his bed. And if that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up. She rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever, I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. And one day, she called her son and said, you'd better come see me because I'm very old and very sick. So her son came to see her. And when he came in the door, she tried to sing the song. She sang, I'll love you forever, like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old, too sick. The son went to his mother, picked her up. He rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang this song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy you'll be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. Then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms. He slowly rocked her back. while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with promise, so that your days may be long in the earth. Let's pray together. God, what a powerful reminder of the gospel that we are always teaching the next generation about who you are. And we are impressing upon them what we do with the junk that we have been handed by this world, sometimes even by our parents, by our family. Lord, what an incredible truth. Lord, may this truth resound not only in our minds, but in our families, in our church, in our culture. Lord, as we see a world that's only concerned about their own rights, Lord, may we become a generation that says, you know, the judgment's left up to God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to use the value of the cross to live in freedom. True freedom. Which means, somehow, God's going to make all things new and all things right. Lord, what an amazing thing you've given us in your grace and your mercy. May we truly embrace that gift. We ask this in your name. That's the name above all names. Jesus.